the headlines that caught my attention yesterday was a headline where the reporter said, uh, this is the first time I've ever wept as I was reporting the news. And of course, that headline intrigued me and, and I uh, went to read the story and it was a, it was a, a story of a, a, a man who had, uh, his wife was in Italy and he was at home taking care of his two small children when the war broke out. And so, because he was of the age that he could not leave and he did not have anything, a place to take his children, he contacted his wife in Italy and she started heading toward the, the border between Poland and the Ukraine. And his desire was simply that the authorities would let him to take, take his children to the border to let his wife pick them up. But as he approached the border and got near the border, uh, still dozens of miles away, uh, one of the checkpoints, he was turned back and they said, your children can go, but you can't go. And so he found a woman that was there and turned his two children over to this woman who he did not know, had no clue who she was, gave her the number of his wife and put his children in her care. She was to be the guardian of his children until hopefully they could reach safety across the border with Poland and find his wife there. Well, eventually she was able to get the children through the, through the border and into Poland. And as she got into Poland and contacted the, the children's mother, they found out that she was near. Uh, she was not very far away and they would only have to wait a few minutes. And that's where this reporter picked up on the story. And, and she saw this, the, the woman who had, who had cared for these, these two children, turned those children back over to their mother and, and saw the great uh, joy and tears and celebration that those children were now in safety. Now, of course, their father is having to pick up a rifle and fight the war back in the Ukraine. But it made me, it reminded me a little bit of, of the difference between the guardian that we see in Galatians chapter 3 and, and what it means to be truly with our father or with our mother. It, it, here, God talks about, in the passage of Scripture talks about how the law, God had given the Israelites, and he had given us kind of as a guardian to, to guide us and give us some direction. And, and yet, the guardian was not to be like a parent to us, but once Jesus came, we were to be adopted into the family of God, and we are his children now. I've had the opportunity, at least with a, a few of the couples in our church, two in particular, I think, but I, I think of one right now as I, I see Sandra out here to be at the courthouse when, when y'all had a, a child adopted, officially adopted into your family who you'd cared for and watched over. But that day when it became official, that, that she was adopted into, into the family, there's a great celebration. How much more so for those whom God has chosen to be a part of his family, who he has chosen to be his heirs, whom he wants to spend eternity with, how much greater is that celebration when you and I are adopted into his family to become one of his children? What a special celebration that day is. And that's the, what Paul talks about here in Galatians chapter 3. There's a movement, uh, kind of a chiasm 
if you're familiar with that term, where Paul begins to talk about the promise made to Abraham, and then he begins to talk about the law that was given to fulfill that promise. And he talks about the role of the Son of God to, to, to fulfill the promise that was made to Abraham. And then you have right in the middle of it a particular statement that is a turning point. And then Paul goes on after that to, to once again talk about the, the role that the Son of God played. And then he talks about a, another angle of a look at the law. And then he talks about the promise to Sarah. And so you, right in the middle of that tends to be, when you have a chiasm like that, that turning point, that, that middle point tends to be the focal point of Paul's entire argument. That's what he's trying to communicate more than anything else to the Galatians in this theological argument from the beginning of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 4. That's where we are today. Verse 26 is the turning point. It's, it's the pinnacle of that, that chiastic argument that Paul gives us. So pay attention to that. I want to begin reading in verse 25. We're going to pick up one verse uh, from last week and then move forward. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to look at uh, verse 25 of Galatians chapter 3 through Galatians 4, 7 today. The scripture says, but since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. He referred to the law as, as our guardians until faith came. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. That's the turning point. When in Christ, you become a child of the eternal King of kings, Lord of lords. You're a child of God. Everything else changes. The law doesn't matter. The law is fulfilled at that point because you are now his son. He goes on to say, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Now, I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he's under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. What an incredibly beautiful passage of Scripture. Now, I want to walk through that with you as, as we normally do and, and break this down. Really, verse 26 lays the foundation for everything else Paul wants to say. That's the turning point. And then he moves to the, the, the next part of his argument where he begins to talk about how that is fulfilled in Christ. In verse 27 through 29, he speaks about the new identity that we have. In verses 5 through 7, he talks about how we're members of a new fa a family. And he, he fleshes that out a little bit there in the middle in verses uh, 1 through 4. But walk with me through this. The first thing that I want you to get in verse 26 is that one 
once we are adopted into the family of God, once we put our faith and trust in Christ, we have a new status. We are no longer under the, the, the power of the enemy. We're no longer under the, the, the rule of the ruler of this world. The Ephesians 2 passage, it was read at the beginning of the service. It says that you once were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you once were under wrath. You, you once were controlled under the, 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 the kingdom of evil. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love that he has toward us, sent his son. But God, that, the movement of God, what God did is what makes the difference. God's choice, God's sending his son makes all the difference. And he gave us a new status. In Colossians, Paul put it a little bit differently. He says, you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light because of what God has done. You have a new status. Your status is that of a son of God. Paul often uses the term son of God in his writings. And in almost every case, in fact, in every other case, I think he had only used it twice in Galatians up to this point, he used the son of God to refer to Jesus. Now here he puts it in the plural and he says that we become sons of God. Certainly we are not sinless, perfect sons of God as the second person of the Trinity. But we have been adopted into the family of God so that we have a position of sonship in his household. We become a part of the household of faith. We become sons of God. We're no longer a slave. Because of that, we're no longer under the law. We are now his sons. So verse 26, you're all sons of God. But that sonship can come only one way. Sonship cannot come through obedience to the law. Sonship only comes through faith. There is no other way. Sonship does not come by uh, heritage or inheritance of a family name. And so the Jews at this point had to understand that, that they were not automatically ushered into the kingdom of God because they were born Jewish. Any more than someone today who was born into a, a, a home with two believing Christian parents, maybe they're Baptist or they're Methodist or they're, or they're Catholic, that does not make that child a Christian. You are not ushered into the kingdom of God because of inheritance or because of your name. You're not ushered into the kingdom of God because you do good deeds. The only hope that you have to be ushered into the kingdom of God to become a child of God is through faith. In John chapter 1 verse 12 he says but all who did not receive or all who did receive him he gave them right, the right to be the children of God to who the end of, first, of John 1:12 says to those who believe in his name it is by faith in Jesus Christ as the eternal son of God as the king of kings the lord of lords the savior believing who he is and trusting in him as our lord it is only through faith that we become a son of God there's no other way because of God's grace he's granted us that privilege to join him and it is only in Christ that we become a son of God. There at the end of verse 26, you are sons of God in Christ. There is 
no other way to become a child of God. There's no other door. There's no other entrance. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is through Christ, by Christ, in Christ, that we become children of God. There's no other way. There's no other hope. There's no other religion. There's no other series of deeds that we can do. It is only by faith in the one and only Son of God who stepped out of heaven, died on a cross, and rose again that you can have everlasting life, inheritance into the kingdom of God by becoming a son of God, a child of God. And so the, the, you see that turning point in Paul's argument here in, in verse 26. Through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Our new status comes from one place and one place alone. That is as a son of God by faith in Christ. We're also granted a higher identity. I had a hard way, a hard time trying to decide exactly how to phrase this because we are given a, a new identity in Christ. And he emphasizes that by, by using this term that you have put on Christ or you have been clothed with Christ. The image there is that you'd have to, to take off something and put on Christ. That's the, the picture of repentance, the, the picture of turning away from an old way of life and turning toward Christ. And Paul uses this image in other places. But the idea is that you have to take off the old self and put on Christ. That's, when you become a child of God, you become a new creature. You take on a new identity. It's like, it's like being completely covered by him. So those of you who were baptized into Christ, and there's a lot of discussion about exactly what he means by baptized here. He may be talking about baptism as that imagery of baptism when, when someone who has professed Christ, who has repented of their sin, and they are baptized in obedience to Christ, that you have that image that they have died to self and they've come up in a new way of life. Or he may be using the word baptized here in a, a, a metaphorical sense, an idea that, that we are literally immersed into Christ so that there's no longer, we, don't, we no longer have an identity of our own. Our identity is only found in Christ. Our identity is wrapped up in his. We're not our own person anymore. We're his. Our identity now is found in him. And he emphasizes that with this idea that, that we are brought together as one in Christ. He said there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. Now, this is one of those verses, especially in our modern day, that gets taken out of context. And, and the idea that it, this verse is used oftentimes to say that in God's kingdom, there's no different role for a Jew or Greek. Well, certainly there are, and there's no different role for slave or free. Well, certainly in Paul's time, there were still those who were slaves and those who were free. We're going to study Philemon and Onesimus in, in the book of Philemon at the end of June. And we're going to understand that because of their culture, Onesimus still had responsibilities to Philemon, who was his owner, even though he had been born again in Christ. Now, Paul walks through some of that, and Paul's not a supporter of slavery, but he's talking about the culture that they're in. Philemon still had a, or Onesimus still had a role to fill in that relationship with Philemon. 
Just like in our day, oftentimes this verse is used to say that, that God has not given separate roles or separate identities to male and female. That's hogwash. This does not erase the identity that God has given you as male or female. Because I am in Christ, I have a new identity in Christ. I have a new hope in Christ. I am now a son of God, but I'm also a pastor. I'm also a man. I'm also male. I'm also a father. And so I have an identity as a father. I now have an identity as a grandfather. That does not erase those other roles that I, that I play, that God has blessed me with or that he has given me in this life. And, and, and so don't be fooled and don't be confused by those who would take that verse out of context to say that, that there is no gender for Christians. Yes, there are. God created male and female. We studied that a few, a few months back. In Genesis, he did not do away with that in Christ. What it does mean that male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, enter before the throne of God, stand before the throne of God on equal footing, rich or poor, black or white. It doesn't matter what your other identities are. When you stand before the throne of the heavenly father, you can only stand before the throne of God by faith in Christ. It is through your identity in Christ that you have hope of being a child of God. It doesn't take away your personality. It doesn't take away your, your, your masculinity or femininity. We are one in Christ as we stand before the throne of God and, and we have equal airship. We have equal opportunity. Every single one of us can bring our, our prayer before God. Every single one of us can receive blessings from the throne of God. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your nationality or your color. That's what this is talking about. It is not erasing identity. It's certainly not erasing gender identity. That was part of God's creation before the fall. If anybody, you hear that, please give it no ear because that's craziness. We are, but we are one in Christ. What this does tell us is we need to understand that, that whether we're, we're Russian or, or whether we're Ukrainian or whether we're from the United States, we only, we stand before God on equal terms. It is not because of our goodness. It's not because of our nationality. It's because of Christ Jesus who died and rose again. It is through him and by him that we are one. We are one in Christ Jesus. And as children of God, one in Christ Jesus, we are recipients of that promise that Nathan spoke about so well last week. God gave a promise to Abraham over 400 years before the law ever came into play. God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants were going to receive an eternal blessing. He, he was going to be used of God to bless every nation on the face of the earth. And he did that through Christ Jesus. And as he did that through Christ Jesus, when we have been adopted into the family, we have been become sons of God. We are one in Christ. He says, if you belong to Christ, 
then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. We become the fulfillment of the promise. We become heirs of that promise as well. God is, is, is using those who have become his children through Christ to fulfill the promise to Abraham and the promise that is fulfilled through us is that we become joint heirs with Christ that, that reaches all the way back to the promise he made to Abraham. What an incredible picture of who we are. We have a higher identity. It, when you think about who you are, we tend to think about, let's, I have to count back. How many years am I been on this earth? I've been on this earth almost 55 years. You know, that's, that's not a bad thing. I understand that there's some discounts coming my way in a couple months, right? Uh, that's the, at least the upside of, of making some of those benchmarks. But my family tree, <laughs> by faith, extends far beyond those 55 years. I've become a, a part of the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham. I've become an heir to that promise, an eternal promise that, that is greater than the law. And remember why Paul is making this argument? He's making this argument because the Galatians were, were turning back to the law and, and they, were, they were kind of setting aside the, the, the freedom and, and the joy that came in being a son of God and being adopted in his family. And they were saying, well, okay, that's all good, but you still have to do this, this, and this, and this. Paul's telling them, you are a child of God. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer enslaved to the law. You now are his child forever. And because we're his child, his children forever, and then he fleshes out that discussion a little bit, verses four through, or verses one through four. I say that as long as an heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is an owner of everything. So it's funny how Paul puts that. He says, as long as an heir, so now you become an heir of the promise, you're a son of God. If you're, if you're a child, you're still kind of uh, under the direction of your parents like a slave would be, except in, in one way, you're now an heir. <laughs> you're now a recipient of the promise. You're owner of everything. And so as a child of God, we become, we gain ownership into the kingdom of God. Instead, so he says, and our guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, and here Paul was referring to the idea of children as those who were kind of under the control of God, under the law, even though they were Jewish, they, they were still under the law. They were in slavery under the elements of the world. Until when? When was the time when, when, the, when, when they could step out from under the slavery to the law and truly rejoice in the promise that was made to Abraham? Rejoice in the fact that they were sons of God. He says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that they might be re receive adoption as sons. Here's the third emphasis that I want you to see here. It's this picture of family. The most prolific picture of the church in the New Testament the, where, where the language uh, is, is, is most prolific in its metaphor of the church is the, the picture of family. 
When we, when we speak of an image of the church, as, as I work through this in my dissertation, oftentimes the first place we go is we talk about the body of Christ. Well, the, the image of the body is only really used in a, in a handful of Paul's letters, especially in Corinthians and in Romans, you see the image of the body and you see the image of the head at Christ as the head in, in Colossians and Ephesians. That's really it. You, 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 the the church is sometimes referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. That language is used even less. Paul uses it a little bit in Corinthians, and Peter uses it in 1 Peter. But the language of family is used throughout the New Testament. God is continually referred to as our Father. All throughout the New Testament, believers refer to each other as brothers or brothers and sisters in Christ. And here we have this beautiful image of the family of God as this eternal kingdom, the church of God, this image of family that we are adopted into God's family as sons of God. It came through redemption by God's son, Jesus Christ. You see that as in verse 4 that I just read. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. It is through Jesus that we can be redeemed from our sin, recovered from our old way of life, purchased by his blood. You don't know how much adoption cost. <laughs> those of you that have been through it, understand the high price of adoption. Whatever you paid to adopt a child doesn't even compare to the price that God paid for you. He paid the price of his one and only son. Jesus. He died so that you and I could be adopted into his family. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ so that we could be adopted into the family of God. And then we were just that, adopted as sons, received into his family in a way that can never be revoked, adopted by God. Read on with me. And after he adopted us, Verse 6 says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. When you were adopted as a child of God, the very spirit of the living God came to indwell your heart. I want to pause here for just a moment very quickly, because there's a, there's a movement out there, and it comes from some people, I, some Baptist authors that I, I really respect, and, and, and I understand where they're coming from, but I want to disagree just a little bit with their interpretation. There's a movement out there. Some of it's coming from David Platt, who was head of the International Mission Board for a while, and, and I think he actually wrote a book, and he's preached messages called, Quit Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. Quit telling people to ask Jesus into your heart. And the, the reason that, that that movement has come about is because far too often, uh, Baptists have equated becoming a child of God, coming into the family of God with something that was kind of a, almost a too easy salvation where all you had to do was pray a prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, and it was all over. That's the pushback. That's the reason for, for that issue. But I think sometimes when we push back against something, we let the pendulum swing too far. 
Because I'll, I'll tell you, there was one point about a year ago when this began to make the rounds, or even my wife asked me, she said, well, that's what I did. I asked Jesus into my heart. Do you think I'm not saved? Good grief. No, if you know my wife, you know better than that, right? And so it's not just about the words that you use or the phrasing that you use. So I want us to be cautious there because one of the things that I've seen recently was the idea that Jesus comes into your heart is unbiblical. Wait a minute. And because you are sons of God, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. It looks biblical to me. Now, I understand the pushback. I understand that, that we need to communicate that when you are born again, you, have a, you, you experience a changed life. Peter said in, in Acts chapter 4 that you repent and are baptized. You turn from an old way of life and you turn toward a new way of life. But let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Let's not forget that something happens, yes, in a very real way. The spirit of the living God comes to dwell within the hearts of those who profess him as their Lord and Savior. The spirit of God's son comes to dwell in your heart. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, fulfilling the promise of Jesus in John chapter 14 when he said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come and I will be with you and I will be in you. We are indwelt by the very Spirit of the living God. That's how we're born again. We're given a new heart. We're transformed from the inside out. God changes us so that it's, it, it's, it's not just this battle that we have on the outside against our flesh, but the spirit of God who changes us from the inside begins to renew our minds and transform our minds so that we're a new person. It's not all up to us to try to fight the battle. It's up to the spirit of God who's indwelt us when we surrender to him and walk with him and, and connect with the spirit who dwells within us and surrender our flesh to the lordship of God, the spirit who dwells in us that will find victory in this life. And so we come to a place we're because of what Christ has done. We can have a relationship with the Father. We're covered by his blood. Our sin is cleansed away. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God to the extent that now we can look to heaven and cry out with the faith of a child, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, I need you. There's been times I remember hearing the sermon of a, of a Catholic priest named Brennan Manning that I learned a little bit about the love of God from. And he, he spoke about how there's times in your life where you just simply need to crawl up in the lap of God and say, Daddy, I need you. And because we're cleansed by the blood of Christ, we're, we're saved with eternal life through his resurrection. We're filled with the spirit of God dwelling in us. We can come to God as our father. Weak as we are. It sounds like foolishness to some because how would a grown man, why would a grown man like me come to God and say, Daddy? Well, when, when you understand how big God is compared to who I am, He's much greater. He's much more than even a daddy. He's the king of kings and lord of lords, and he has accepted me into his family and dwelt me by his spirit and entrusted me as an heir in his kingdom. 
And that's the last thing that Paul tells us here. Because you're adopted as sons and dwelt by his spirit, you can cry out that intimate cry, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. For every single one of you, every single one of us, who has become a child of God, adopted into his family, we now have eternity to look forward to. God is an eternal God. This world is temporary. There's a, there's a reason that many in the Ukraine right now can stand up and fight. For some, it's about heroism. For some, it's about their country. For some, it's about freedom. But for others, it's because they know they have a future home. Right now, we're speaking each day and with John Wilson and praying for Susan. And Susan's not, Susan's struggling right now, church. You can pray for John. He's one of our deacons and his wife. She's been in the hospital for, for almost a week now, I think, maybe a little over a week. And, and uh, it's just a, a difficult time for them. But his hope and her hope are secure because she's a child of God. She's an heir of an eternal kingdom. And just like, just like Katie, my daughter, when Susan, at some point, when she takes her last breath on this earth, she's going to wake up in the presence of God because she's an eternal heir. Not in her own strength. It wasn't her goodness that made her an heir. It wasn't her lineage that made her an heir. Paul says, God God made you an heir. He gave you eternal life. He extended the promise that he'd made to Abraham to each and every person who had put their faith in Christ. Just as Abraham believed God by faith and it was counted to him as righteousness, so also every one of us who believes Christ by faith becomes a recipient of the promise. We become an heir to the eternal kingdom of God. That, that is the difference that God made when he sent his son so that you could be adopted into his family. Amen. If you don't have that assurance, you say, Pastor, I've never put my faith and trust in Christ. I've never walked forward and obediently followed him in baptism. I haven't put aside my old life to, to become a Christian. If you haven't done that and you don't have that assurance, I plead with you in the next few moments, put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for eternity. Come talk to me. Come talk to Nathan about it. We'd love to tell you how you can become a part of that family of God that's an eternal family. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.